Greetings, and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kev. How's life for you at the moment? Well, I've not been kidnapped, exclamation point, uh, just sort of usual humdrum of staying indoors, thankfully. Well, it's very responsible of you. So, um, this week, we are going to be covering Kidnapped. Yes, so we are going to be delving into the world of Donna. And that means we are going to have the chance to discuss Catherine Tate again. And we always like to have a chance to do that. So, um, we're covering all four episodes of this box set in today's episode. So, um, well, let's let's start at the beginning with Out of This World by Jacqueline Rayner. Um, Kev, would you care to give us a quick summary? I'm just going to give a quick summary of the whole box set because all of these are going to be one line summaries and we can, we can go episode by episode. But uh, basically... Donna set, gets set up on the first episode out of this world. Donna gets set up for a fake dating service. Uh, gets very confused who the actual alien imposter is among a group that is very clearly suspicious. Winds up being stranded on the TARDIS with her friend Natalie. Donna and Nat then escape the collectors who have kidnapped them. Wind up on an alien planet where all of the news and wars are instead shifted by expert public relations firms who are evil and are then taken down. They wind up in medieval times, encounter a sorcerer who thinks Donna is Merlin. He is not quite always cracked up to be. He is dispatched of, and then they wind up back in the present day and defeat the collectors who have replaced Donna with a duplicate. It's all very, very simple stories. Yeah, I think that's probably a fair way to say it. There's there's nothing here which is going to uh, especially tax the brain, I think it would be fair to say. But let's begin at the beginning and kick off. Um, so how did you find Out of This World as a kind of introduction to the idea of doing a box set which is actually centered around Donna rather than the Doctor? Uh, I think Out of This World is a very fun start to the box set. It got me at least a little bit interested in seeing where this could go. I think it's a overall weakness. It's the strongest story easily of the box set. And that's just because of just the freshness of hearing Catherine Tate again, uh, Nikki Wardley having a great introduction to her character. It rests on the humor more than the other ones, thanks to the deft touch of Jacqueline Rayner, who we have a lot of positive words for usually. And I think that's because she usually is the only big finished writer who really understands how to do comedy better than anyone else. And I think that definitely shows through here that Vandery, Donna, and that, and Donna and her mom are both really strong parts of the story. Uh, I think, yeah, I just think it's a very fun story, a lot of fun running around, and it's just like you said, it's not very taxing, but at least there is a little, there's a little bit of farce with like some scenes like on the restaurant at the speed dating, and besides that, it's just pleasant. Yeah, I think um, I think it's very kind of low-key charming. I think is how I would yeah. kind of describe out of this world. It's 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 sort of nice, and I mean, obviously, they, they, they sort of go out the way to explicitly point out that this is following the events of uh, Silence in the Library and Donna needing some space to kind of breathe and and uh, you know try and get her head together after losing her fictional husband and her family and all the rest of it. And there's something quite nice about it i don't know that you could ever say that it it, it brushes up against um you know drama particularly there's, there's not a lot of drama going on here but it's just it's sort of sweet to see donna being given the space to react like a normal human being would rather than just kind of dashing off into the next adventure and that's always been kind of one of donna's uh strong points as a character is that she 
gets the opportunity to be able to you know react to events in the way that you would think people might when they're actual real people rather than uh, you know in inverted commas doctor who companions so the idea that she might need to take a little break from the doctor after the events of silence in the library that's perfectly consistent but that's not something for example that you would have ever had with uh, Martha, her immediate predecessor. You know, Martha just gets thrown into the next adventure, next adventure, next adventure, until she comes to the end of her time. And that's that. Um, that I, I like the way that this is posited as Donna just needing that extra kind of emotional space because she feels, um, I think particularly of the, of the uh, Davis era companions, she feels like the most rounded. She feels like the one with the, the, um, the sort of greatest interiority if you like and and so i really like the way that that uh, sort of jack rayner is able to get that get into that and, and and sort of find ways of having donna just react to stuff like a kind of normal human being would yeah and i mean as a little bit of a sidebar at the place in the library i think about like how a season four was sort of plotted out and the the fact that it goes from that two-parter to midnight to turn left back to back that was a i don't think i ever really appreciated how until i started thinking about the timelines of it that's a very dark stretch of the show yeah. i'm glad donna has this little uh gap in there as far as a way to relax and such goes so yeah it's nice to sort of situate it there situate that as part of her development now she's very firmly been a companion for nine or so stories uh, if you're like placing at that point in time and it's it shows that she's like become a changed person already like her mother doesn't even really recognize her anymore and I think I think the relationship between Donna and Sylvia is one of the strongest parts of the story you really do like Sylvia has always been sort of a very quickly brushed off character when she's appeared on TV because she's not compelling like Donna she's not compelling like Wilf because I know it's respect to Jacqueline King, but I mean, that's just how Dusty Davis sort of positioned her as more of just like sort of the naggy voice of reason in a lot of these stories, just a very sort of sketched out version of a naggy mom. And this really gets it to how much she cares for Donna. And I really appreciated that. Yeah, I did as well. I really love the little scene where they get to sit down together and just sort of actually talk like a, a mother and daughter might and it, it's just such a nice and like little details like the way that um that sylvia sort of lets her have like the fancy biscuits that are usually kept for for visitors that's an incredibly small detail but it it's one of the things that anchors sort of sylvia as a character and kind of the situation as something uh, normal and i think part of the problem with um sylvia is that if she's not written well she can come across as just kind of not a very particularly pleasant character and we get some of that internal left when you know she's she's you know sort of depressed and dismissive of donna and obviously that's a an alternative universe in a different situation but we get to explore a little bit of the fact that sylvia does have like a bit of a nasty streak to her but here we get to see kind of the other side and we get that kind of gentleness and that kind of understanding of, of her daughter and I, I love the scenes that those two have together I wish there were kind of more of them but just getting Jacqueline King and Catherine Tate to, to have those scenes opposite each other is 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 just great and and it's such a like everything in this box set is low-key this is also a low-key conversation but it's just it, it, it feels like it's a real thing like these are two actual people 
who are talking to each other, not characters who now need to take a pause and, and whatever. And like you mentioned humour earlier on. I think Jack Rayner does a great job of landing the humour in this story, but she does it in such a way that the she's not trying to be funny, she's trying to be humorous, and it's a really important difference. We'll get onto this more um, when, when we talk about the next episode, but here, a lot of the humour is in kind of like little asides or funny one-liners or, or, or whatever that, that, um, that Natalie has or, or that Donna has or, or whatever, and we get that kind of laced throughout this whole episode but when they have that scene between Sylvia and Donna when it's just the two of them having this little quiet moment all those funny lines and all those jokes kind of fall away and we just get kind of like an honest exchange between these two characters and that it makes it sort of resonate even more because the the, the jokes which are sort of often defensive or often a bit catty or whatever you know they fall away and we just get yeah this this kind of genuine exchange between these two these two women it's it's such a lovely scene and i think um i think i kind of agree with what you said i think this is probably the best of the four episodes on on the box set and it's because it understands that low-key doesn't need to mean minor this is a low-key story there's almost no science fiction in it at all it's mostly just okay donna gets to be natalie donna needs time out donna needs to have time talking to her mom or whatever but that's fine that's a perfectly good basis to, to kind of anchor an episode on and I think Jack Renner is the right writer to be able to do that because she understands that kind of low-key interaction so well. And I just think the way that she lands it between Donna and Sylvia is is just excellent. Yeah, and like I'm speaking of the humor, I I think you're right. This is a humorous story, and like overall a humorous box set. It like Donna and Natalie, I mean Catherine Tate and Nikki Wardley are primarily comedic actors, and the writers do. Or at least attempt to do a good job giving them like one-liners and silly moments, and they definitely are less. Donna has always been positioned as a less serious companion, and it makes sense that her friend would be sort of in that same mode. So, yeah, and it's the whole box set is charming throughout, but I think Jacqueline Rayner gets it the best. Like every episode has a, to varying degrees, at least some sort of like chuckleness worthiness to them, and. And we'll talk about the least one next, but uh, this is definitely the best one as far as just, I think, getting the characters right, having the most, the highest sort of quantity of these that land, and just generally being a good time. Well, yeah, and I think it helps that Nikki Wardley and Catherine Tate have a previous relationship. You know, they work together on, on the Catherine Tate show. So it means that that sort of rapport between them is instantly established. So the idea that these are two friends kind of picking up their, 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 their friendship, you know, after a certain length of time apart, not just because Donna's been traveling with the doctor, but just they obviously haven't seen each other for a while. It rings true. And so all the, all the little kind of one-liners about, um, you know, how Donna looks or, or too much makeup or whatever it happens to be, they come across as sort of genuine and kind of affectionate ribbing rather than kind of sort of bitchy or, or, or sort of nasty in any way. And, and that kind of, yeah, that kind of pre-existing relationship between the two actors, I think, was a long way, you know, to selling the, the, the sort of friendship between Donna and Natalie. And that's going to be really important because if, if we don't buy into the fact that these are two people who are real friends with each other, and then they're going to go off on all these kind of weird and wonderful adventures. Then you know it, the whole box set is going to collapse. It's really that's the really the 
kind of like for all the the, the loveliness of the, the little conversations between Donna and Sylvia, Donnelly, Donna and Natalie, that has to be the key relationship because Natalie's in all four box, uh, all four episodes of the box set, um, and it works. It comes across as a real sort of relationship, a real friendship, and that's so important here. Yeah, the Donna and Nat friendship is easily the best part of all of these stories, and it's it's just very strongly built. It's very well acted. I think every writer to some degree gets it, and it's just always something to come back to. The same way a doctor-companion relationship is always something good to come back to. Like, when in doubt, it's a good character relationship to rely on. Uh, so yeah, Donna and Nat, yeah, it's, they've just always worked well together, and I think if anything else, it's this is at least worth existing because it gives us that character and that relationship. Uh, and I feel like, I don't know, it's almost grasping at straws reasons box it to exist, but at least it's more Catherine Tate, and at least we have this sort of introduction of this character. So it's not nothing, for sure. Oh, no, definitely. And, you know, like getting involved in a minor kind of like speed dating thing, that's kind of, again, it's kind of low-key, but it's it, it, it feels like somebody... You know, like Donna comes from this kind of lower middle class. You know, she comes from Chiswick. She comes from the suburbs. You know, it feels like something that would exist in her life, regardless of whether the doctor was involved or not. Oh, yeah, her mom wants her to find a, a boyfriend, wants her to find a man, so she's going to push her out to do this speed dating thing. I think one of the things that this box set does quite a good job of, in a sort of relatively subtle way, is that idea that this isn't set in 2020. This is set a decade ago. So in this story, you have something like speed dating. Now, I don't know if speed dating is still a thing now, but I don't think it really is, is it? Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm sort of old and settled, so maybe I'm wrong. But, you know, it's just that that feels like something that was a big deal like 10 years ago, but like now... Yeah, that, that yeah. doesn't. You don't really see that anymore. And there's there's a cut. Like, I think in the fourth episode, there's um, a reference to the fact that people are are doing video conferences. Now we're recording this in the middle of lockdown, and you know, video conferences are all anybody can talk about to keep businesses going and work going, whatever. It it couldn't be kind of more. 2020 if it tried but there's a slight awkwardness about the way that people talk about it in the fourth episode so it has that same thing because people like 10 years people weren't that familiar with video conferencing or teleconferencing they use that nobody says teleconferencing anymore so there's there's that there's little there's lovely little sort of subtle hints throughout this that this isn't based now it's not based in 2020 when we were recording this it's based a decade ago and that's I, I like those little pieces of attention to detail so that like yeah Donna getting involved in, in some like madcap speed dating thing and being offended when the you know the, the handsome charming man doesn't pick her or whatever that that feels like Jack Rayner has a really good kind of handle on the character and, and the fact that yeah it's not now and that that goes such a long way to sort of successfully establishing this first episode as like a solid basis for the rest of this adventure to go forward on I'm just now imagining what it's going to look like when we get the, I don't know. It's hard to think of a, uh, the the Ryan box set where he is like encounters an alien <laughs> on Tinder or something. <laughs> yeah, that gives us something else to look forward to. But yeah, it's definitely, yeah, it uses the time well and, uh, the, yeah, as in time period well. And I also really like the sort of contrast, like you said, the two guys that are sort of the in the middle of the story, the suave Adrian and sort of hapless Dennis. And then there's this back and forth on which one is actually the menace here. And I think 
that's that's a nice little bit of farce, like the going into the bathroom and having secret conversations between Donna and Nat as they sort of go ping pong back and forth on what the plan is and how to sort of entrap one of them, depending on which one, whether or not Adrian is working with the doctor or not. It's it's a little like I said, still very low key, but it's enough engagement to keep you going as far as knowing there's like a broader plot around. Yeah, I think that's probably a sort of perfect summary. It's kind of low key, but it's enough to kind of get you going, and that's that's basically what this first episode sort of achieves. So, um, I think we can probably leave out of this world uh, for now and 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 move on to Spin Vision um, by the usually reliable John Darney. So, um, yeah, how did you find this one? Um, uh, dumb. <laughs> <laughs> it's it thinks it has a very clever idea. And I thought it had a very clever idea for about 15 minutes. And then, oh, it just has the one idea, doesn't it? And, yeah, it's it just hits you over the head with it over and over. And, yeah, I mean, like you said, I think that's a big failing for the rest of this box set is they're all, like Jacqueline Rayner, I think there's a smart job of only writing one or two of these a year as opposed to, like, the dozen of year Dorney, Goss, and Fitton do. Who And so... All of these stories have a very familiar feel to them because these are all ideas Big Finish has hashed out before. And yeah, I mean, it just it just doesn't really feel fresh. Even if it's... Even I don't know if Big Finish is specifically done. Uh, what if Alien Invasion meets PR lingo? I, it feels like the kind of half-clever, half-dark idea that they would tip their, dip their toes in frequently. And it just doesn't follow through with a second gear ever. No, that's that's a perfectly fair uh, description. In fact, it's considerably counter that I was going to be. I'm going to slightly go off on one now, so forgive me, uh, both, both both Kev and listeners. Um, I just think this is one of the worst things that Big Finish have ever recorded. I think it's absolute garbage. And it's baffling because, yeah, John Dorney is normally a relatively strong writer. He does turn out a lot of material. But, you know, this is just terrible i was oh my god i find it so difficult to sort of listen to this episode it thinks it's so clever and it's dumber than a bag of rocks it's awful and it's it's that difference between um you know we're talking about with the the first episode it's that difference between somebody trying to be humorous i.e being able to find humor by just making a story light and having a few funny lines in it or a couple of like witty conversations as somebody who thinks that they can do kind of like and now here's the funny episodes because you know i've also read douglas adams so this garbage doesn't impress anyone and that's the thing it's it's kind of swinging for a big kind of high concept thing and a lot of this feels like sub 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 douglas adams because it's doing that like well we can give them a wacky funny name so that'll be funny and here's like a clever thing whereby the company are really oh god no please don't do that like douglas adams is like a once in a century genius that could kind of pull this sort of stuff off sorry john dorney but you're not and everything about this story just made my toes curl i absolutely hated it and the thing that offended me 
most about it. And this is just bad timing. It isn't John Dorney's fault. It's not Big Finish's fault. But the thing I hated about it most is that there's a line in it which is, is something like, oh, well, you know, the, the this PR company are coming in with all their lies. Maybe we can use the truth to defeat them. And I think it's Donna that's given like, no, no, you can only defeat like lies with uh, other lies or misgendered. And uh, there is no more irresponsible a message to be putting out at the moment than we can defeat one untruth with another untruth. I know it's just bad timing. I know we're in the middle of lockdown. and it, But it just, like, it, there's just something about it that just, oh, it, it really, really got my goal. I really cannot describe how much I dislike. Like, the rest of the box set is fine. But this is a massive kind of sinkhole sitting right in the middle of it. And I could not stand it. Yeah, for Douglas Adams is a great call for what this story vastly fills up to. Uh, writers I was thinking about listening to it who are also vastly better who uh, are Ianucci and yeah. uh, Rob Shearman, Big Finish's own, I think would do a fantastic job on this a similar concept. And this is like a pale, pale imitation of that. Yeah, and, couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's I, – I, like I said, I think I was a little interested at the beginning because I do think the idea of, uh, yeah, alien invasion and just – sort of playing with like the will of like the people being fickle is a funny it's like oh my, it's an interesting concept but yeah it's just it's so basic and blah and like all of like the working class is painted as idiots in the yeah, story that's, so oh that annoyed me so much like it's just so unsympathetic and and that's that's the really core of it. it's such an unsympathetic story to everyone else who's not our main characters which is never something i like to see yeah, I, I think that I think that point you make about the the fact that the working classes are all stupid is is a really good one because if you're going to do this kind of story, you're going to do the idea that um, politics can be led by PR. I mean that in and of itself is not any kind of revelation. How many decades have we been talking about spin doctors and special advisors and all the rest of it? I mean that's that's fine. That that's that's certainly a thing, and that's certainly a thing that you could build some kind of sci-fi satire or some kind of story around but um this isn't it and it's because i think because everybody is treated um as kind of uh cliches i, I was i was going to be sort of generous and, and try and find another word but basically just cliches so the working class are all thick and led by the nose the um the people who work in the pr company are all oh yeah so we're all hoity-toity kind of you know uh, you know boring yuppie cliches as well they're not even you know they're not even really given characteristics beyond a funny name and 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 the way that they speak and that there's just no investment in this that that suggests that it's any anything other than you know a series of, of of poorly written comedy sketches sort of facing off against each other rather than the idea that this is an actual society and that there might be consequences there's certainly never any sense of threat and certainly never any sense of that are worry or fear about these people, and we're not given any reason to care about them either, you know. So there's no particular reason to sort of, if we don't care what happens to the people, why are we going to care about anything else that happens in the story? Why, why, why are we at? We're being asked to side with the kind of the the oppressed population just because that's what Doctor Who does, not because there's any reason intrinsic in the story that makes us suggest that that's the case. The good people are are sort of good and being exploited the bad people are bad and evil and just doing a bad evil thing and that's it there's no shades of gray there's no uh sense that there might be 
kind of any sort of moral duplicity or questions that can be asked or or points that are raised. It's just it's just so staggeringly clumsy. And it's kind of a shame because I want this is a very angry story, it feels like. And I want to be on the same page of that anger about, yeah, uh, people in power and often right-wing people in power are using uh, these sort of to implant fascist policies through spin and PR and manipulating the media to sort of influence decisions. I don't think that's controversial to say. I feel like when I said it out (laughs) loud, I was like, does that sound crazy? But no, I think that's accurate. No, 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 that makes perfect sense. You're quite right. And, uh, People on the opposition have a problem with uh, their own PR and combating that because, but uh, yeah, you're right that the message that the fighting the only way to fight lies is lies is deeply irresponsible and yeah, it's it also has nothing more to say beyond that. It doesn't have a point to make with that sort of anger and it by turning that anger into very flippantness into just like a side eye sarcastic thing. It's just unpleasant. It's not righteous anger. It's just what are you gonna do and that's just so unhelpful yeah exactly and i think the other thing is is that um for the majority of this story we have um sort of donna and and nat not spending that much time together and that does real damage because like even if the story was garbage which it is you know, if we had that kind of key relationship at the middle and we, we understood how these two girls were trying to sort of muddle the girls, that sounds very patronizing, I don't mean that, how these two women are trying to sort of muddle through and they're sort of doing their best to deal with this situation, that would be fine. But setting them up in opposition, so Donna's working for one company and, and sort of Nat is, is working for another, um, doesn't really work. There's no kind of dramatic irony to it there's no sense of like an underlying rivalry it just so happens that they both end up like this because um you know one's got a bigger mouth than the other it it doesn't it doesn't feel like there's any you know that like you could exploit some kind of dramatic tension out of that um or maybe you know expose fault lines in a friendship because the previous one uh the first story we had uh, you know donna and nat just being nice and a knockabout kind of thing but maybe there's something deeper that went on in the past we don't get anything like that at all we just get well they're they're on other sides and then eventually they come together and the day is saved in the kind of the most unengaging fashion possible i'm sorry i don't like being this negative about you know, these stories, it doesn't give me any pleasure to rip into this. And I agree absolutely with what you say. I think there is a real anger at the heart of this. It's just, it does not in any way find a successful execution in the story. And yeah, it's a shame that the splitting them up doesn't work so well, because I think when that first happened, I thought, oh, this is a great idea. You show why Nat isn't companion material by having her like play along with it just to save her own skin rather than stand up for them. Like Donna, like is, unable not to do like it, it's a bit of a forced scene because donna blows her cover so to speak so quickly mm-hmm. and but it was intriguing that nat was playing along and you thought oh more scenes of her playing along and her and, and donna on the other side could be interesting and instead it's mostly just nat then doing the same thing donna was in that scene just objecting to all the horrible things and just being a passive observer instead of something anything more interesting and so, yeah, and then splitting that becomes a negative because they're just not doing anything interesting together. And the most interesting relationship in the box set is just off the table. Yeah. And, you know, like, 
the compassion and the understanding that Donna has, that's one of the key elements of this uh, companion. So the idea that you want to write a story which kind of moves towards it, you know, if you, if, if you think of Fires of Pompeii or, um, you know, um, Planet of the Oud, when, when she, you know, breaks down in tears hearing the, the Oud's uh, sort of enslaved songs or whatever, we know that that kind of compassion is, is such a key element to, to Donna as a character. So the idea of her leading a revolution in a planet, I mean, yeah, you can see how that rings true. Of course she wants to help this kind of oppressed population. Of course she sees them being sort of led blindly into these kind of um, factories. And um, not only are they, are, are they uh, enslaved, but they're sort of willingly enslaving themselves. You can see all the dots you, they're just not joined up in any way and that it, it, part of the part of the reason i think that i have such a sort of strongly negative reaction to this story is that i think it is so easy to see how this could have functioned i'm not going to read out the story because i don't think there's enough of it that's successful in order to be able to do that even apart from the fact that that's not really you know what we're here for but you can see the shape of the story that that I think John Darney is trying to get to, but it is just so far wide of the mark. But I couldn't wait for the theme tune to run out. Please let it get over and let us get to the next one. And I never thought that that would be a feeling I had when I was listening to something that Donna was in. Yeah, that's the perfect note, I think, to leave Spinvasion on. And that takes the Sorcerer of Albion, which is a story I have so few thoughts about. It is... <laughs> Granted, uh, part of the problem is because of a like, small scheduling change. I listened to this and the other two first three a week ago, but at least I was able to keep up and have thoughts on Alice Runs Invasion. Sources of Albion was a story, all right. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, uh, yeah, it's definitely a story. Um, it, yeah. it, like, I, I appreciate the idea that they're trying to give, like, I, I guess, Nat her own you know, a little moment in the spotlight. The story is more about her, Donna gets stuck in a, a cellar for half the story or whatever. So I, I, I'm fine with the idea that they want to give her her space to breathe. And I think that's a good character. You know, I do, I did like her. I, I, I wish we'd maybe had some stronger stories for her to appear in, but she's, she's not a bad character. She works well. She feels, you know, of a part of Donna's world. So the idea of taking that um and and putting her in a situation where she just doesn't have any kind of experience because it's not just that it's like obviously she's essentially functioning as a companion to donna but not a particularly successful one but this isn't just like we've had two sci-fi stories in a row now one of them okay very mild sci-fi story without this world but based on earth and one of them a kind of traditional sort of doctor who goes to another planet sort of um story i suppose it's a sort of alien invasion story but that's fine so here we have her thinking she's kind of got her space legs, as it were, and then she kind of gets thrown into this medieval world where she thinks that the most rational explanation for everything that's happening is, is magic rather than science. Um, and so, you know, all the things she thinks she's built up a bit of experience and then that's immediately sort of, you know, her legs are cut out from under her when she's faced with burning knights and sorcerers and, and all the rest of it. Um... Again, I can see the shape of it. It's going to be saying there's a lot, I guess, this episode. I can see the shape of why that seems like a good idea, but I'm not sure it's actually a good idea. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, it's it's just such a basic story, and we've seen I you sub Donna for the Doctor and Natalie for a companion. You see this happen a lot. The Doctor gets locked up and has to escape. You, the companion goes off on their own and then tries to inspire confidence in other guest characters. And it's just, it's very familiar beats. It's nothing's very surprising. We sort of know Parvel is like kind of a creep from the moment he shows up. And the the Burning Knights is sort of not all what they seem. And so, yeah, it's just, it's all very obvious. It's just nothing surprised me. Everything just felt like it was following an autocomplete script. And again, James Goss is a more reliable of these very frequent writers. But I mean, like I also said, <laughs> this is his dumbest story of the year. So it's like, I mean, what I guess he's, of course, not going to hit every time. It's just going to be run of the mill occasionally and this is very the definition of run of the mill well i also like the first time you hear somebody use the word granddaughter it's obviously going to evoke something in doctor who fans it's obviously going to immediately kind of draw on that kind of first doctor susan relationship and i think the idea that you could do a parallel between sort of pavel and his sort of granddaughter and like the first doctor susan like you could do something with that and let's be honest if you're buying a donna noble box set from big finish that isn't going to be some obscure piece of mythology that you you know only the hardcore there's only hardcore fanboys that are going to be or fangirls that are going to be buying this you know it's not fan people it's not going to be something that you know so they could do something like with that or the idea that you know it's sort of like the idea that it's reaching kind of for the heart no era but but with kind of a contemporary sort of companion it feels like there might be kind of mileage in that but it doesn't like we get a cut well, like we get an offhand reference to like the the first doctor's notebook but that's not that's just fan wank that's just a continuity tick oh well done you've ticked another box great well we know big finish can do that we don't care you were doing that 20 years ago it's not interesting um but you but like the parallel between those two relationships that's a good idea you know i can i can see why that's something that would be worth pursuing, but I don't think anything is ever made of that. Yeah, and I also—I mean, speaking of continuity, I also like the bringing in of Merlin into it, as established in the sort of Seventh Doctor TV era, that uh, the Doctor is Merlin, and Merlin has encountered the medieval times multiple times under that guise, and so having Donna show up in the TARDIS and be mistaken for Merlin—that tracks. And then I think we get to, I guess, the most interesting part of the story, which is the fact that Parvel is sexist, <laughs> and it becomes this little bit, this little parallel of Vivian. You can rise above your station and uh, treat women better. And I mean, it sounds less patronizing than I'm making it out to be in the story. No, so. <laughs> no it's pretty patronizing. <laughs> All right, but yeah, it's it's not, yeah, it's not great, and it's not particularly fascinating. Well, we even kind of get a slight nod towards kind of like Jodie Whittaker becoming the Doctor as well, because they have that thing about, well, you know, why shouldn't Merlin be a woman? You know, his aspect can, can you know, he has many aspects to contain all the stories about him. So why why wouldn't one of them be a woman? And again, it's like, I can, I'm slightly more forgiving towards that because it doesn't hammer the point home. It just allows it to kind of, okay, well, fine. Yeah, like the idea that Merlin contain aspects, that's a thing. It's not, 
it's not a million miles away from kind of, you know, regeneration. So fine, I, I, I'm okay with that line being drawn. It's quite, quite nicely handled, but it's kind of the exception that proves the rule because none of the rest of it is. It's so kind of clunky. Um, there's just no, there's just no there there. There's just like the story is nothing. The characters aren't really anything. Pavel doesn't emerge as anything other than a moustache twirler. His granddaughter needs to kind of step up to the plate. Okay, that's nice. Um, and it's all just kind of there. It's it's very hard to kind of, I don't know. I like it's exactly what you said. I I don't really even know what to say about this. It's certainly something I listened to for an hour. But that's just kind of it. The last thing I really think I need to talk about is the inclusion of Garrison, Natalie's ex-husband, as also the voice of the TARDIS. Mm -hmm. And just because that's, that's so weird and tortured, it's it's clearly there to just give Nat someone to talk to for most of the story and to have instructions on what to do next. But to also then put the ex-husband thing on top of that and work out that relationship through that, it's just two incompatible ideas, really. And I appreciate the trying to do more character development for Nat while also fulfilling this necessary story function. But I don't know, it just does also the that exercise stuff isn't that interesting. It's very rote, so it doesn't really go anywhere. And I almost wonder is like like David Tennant has a cameo in the fourth episode. He couldn't stick around for a couple hours to give Nat some necessary exposition. Or they couldn't pull in Paul McGann for a day or Peter Davison just to give us a fun cameo and give her some exposition <laughs> that would make me <laughs> excited like for at least for a little few seconds well yeah but it, you know, I, I understand the idea of not doing that because i it, you know like if this is going to be a donna boxer she shouldn't be eclipsed by the doctor yeah. turning up or 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 not being eclipsed by it as well so like i again i see the shape of it but it just like yeah the character isn't interesting enough and the performance isn't interesting enough to be able to do that and like we've seen like the the TARDIS's like um, emergency protocols before with the hologram, that's fine. But we've never seen it like this. It's like previously, it's just basically been like a, a recording, like parting of the ways or whatever. We've never seen it be something which can like really interact. Like I know there's a bit of it in uh, is it Let's Kill Hitler, I think, or whatever. I, it, it, nah, it, it just doesn't work. And yeah, it's just a way of getting some exposition out there. Yeah, and it, like I guess. Also, the taking a familiar form. Like, has that been done before? Because it's, it's just a lot of extra stuff to pile on for a very basic story function. I can't... I, like, the only thing I can think... I remember the TARDIS hologram cycling through different companions in, in Let's Kill Hitler. And that's the closest thing... Uh, after the Doctor's been poisoned, you know, by River. That's the closest thing I can think of. Um, but I can't think of... Maybe I'm missing something. Actually, you know what? Let's throw it open to the listeners. If you can, th if, if you know what the hell we're talking about, well done if you do. Um, if you can think of an example of that, then then email us and, and sort of let us know because I, I can't think of one. I, this just seems like a contrived excuse. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, I think we can probably uh, leave the Sorcerer of Albion there and move on to the Chiswick Cuckoos by Matt Fitton. So we're back in the 21st century and... Um, we have a sort of relatively straightforward doubling story. So we have um, people being replaced by um, identical doubles. And, um, well, I think you probably know where that story is going to go. So um, anyway, let's see. What did you think of the Chiswick Cookies? I think it really highlights that uh, contemporary London is sort of the best setting for this kind of tone and these kind of characters. Like, it's no great shakes, but 
it at least gets us back to sort of a baseline of this is pleasant to listen to again. Uh, I think Tate and Wordley are doing a better job here. I mean, they're were, they were always consistently good, at least, in all yeah. of these stories. But here they're back up to that first episode where there's a little more to dig into, having a little more fun, and just a little more zippier, a little few more one-liners. And yeah, it just it doesn't have quite the same depth or interest as that first story, which already was pretty shallow and not that interesting. But it's yeah, it's definitely an improvement and it gets the job done. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I think it's kind of interesting in a way. Like you said, the the, the like contemporary London is the best setting for these characters, and I, I agree with that setting, and I think that's kind of interesting in a way because, you know, one of the things about Donna's background is that it is relatively detailed. So, um, you know, we got reference, like in, in the first story, we got reference to the fact that her, her father's died and, and you know, that's that's part of her her kind of whole sort of makeup. And I really like the way that sort of Sylvia responds to that and reacts to that and, and the way that it's kind of become part of their lives. Um, the way that we sort of carry on here, so the way that Nat has this job, which actually she seems to be pretty decent at, even before kind of running away and this whole sort of box set uh, happening. She's got a life which is certainly, you know, you can see the kind of the Venn diagram where it overlaps with Donna's life, but she also has her own things going on. And that's good and interesting. And, and like that whole background that Donna has, I think her background is, is sort of, it's certainly more fleshed out, I think, than, um, well, I was going to say more fleshed out than both Rose and, um, I don't know if that's true. Or maybe maybe I'm being unfair in Rose now. But I like, I, I, I love the details of, of, of Donna's life. And I love the fact that we get to meet her mother, her father, her, her grandfather. Obviously, it's it's almost heartbreakingly terrible that we don't have any wolf in this. But uh, you know, that's fine. No problem. Um, that's not a, it's not a fault of this box set. But I, I love the details of her life and, and when we do sort of intersect with it. And I think that's what I think because even she's only there for one season, because we have so much detail about her, her life on Earth, I think when we're exploring what she does in contemporary London, I think that's why it has that resonance. Whereas any companion can go off and stop an invasion or travel to the you know, medieval times or whatever. That, that's fine. But this is very kind of specific. And, and I, that specificity, I think, is plays so well for Donna and for... Um, for Catherine Tate and, and I just I, I like spending time in her life because it feels distinct just, I, I feel like I'm rambling now but do you know what I mean? Yeah uh, Yeah. to fill in your thought from earlier it's more fleshed up than Martha at least who even Thank when we introduced, yeah, yes. <laughs> introduced her family it was just nothing that interesting and more interesting than even past the Davies era any Moffat or uh, well, Chim Nozzle's done a little bit with Ryan and Graham more but Definitely more so than any than like Yaz or any of the Moffat companions. We've gotten a really good look into Donna's background, her family, and yeah, I think you're right. I think it's a very good world to play in, even in with Bernard Cribbins unavailable to record for any of this box set. You just, I mean, Jacqueline King was still around, and you still get a really good sense of what her life is like. I think it's like very helpful and very like critical into setting her apart from other companions. And so yeah, I think this does a good job in filling in those details. I think it also does a great job by way of Nat. I think, 
like you said, it shows how she's not really cut out for this, how she has her own life and how she's good at that life. And it's a nice mirror image for Donna, for how you can see why Donna is dissatisfied when that can be satisfied, even if admitting it was like a fun adventure. It's a, it's a nice contrast and it makes both characters a little richer for it. Well, absolutely. And I think, um, I think Sylvia comes out of this very well as well, because we actually get a little bit of that kind of, you know, she gets a chance to express the fact that she's disappointed in Donna in some ways. And that's always been part of Sylvia's character. And it's not really a part of her appearance in, in the first episode of of This World, but it is part of her appearance here. And I, I think that's important because it makes the relationship between Donna and Sylvia more complex it's not as straightforward as just saying oh well you know the mother will always support the daughter or the daughter will always rebel against the mom or whatever it, it gives some shading to the relationship they have because it's very clear i think both from uh, the writing in these stories and from the the tv show as well and also for uh, jacqueline king's performance it's so clear how much love sylvia has for donna but that that also sometimes pushes her into an unhealthy place where she can be hypercritical, where she can be unkind, where it's not really justified, or at least we, we don't see it as being justified. That's interesting, and that's an unusual kind of take in that relationship, and I think that's why the relationship between Donna and Sylvia is so strong. Obviously, the actors have got a lot to do with that, but we have that complexity when we start um, to look at uh, other characters in Donna's life, so the relationship that she has with Wilf, it is, I mean, you know, Bernard Crippens is beyond perfect, and we love Bernard Crippens, but it's a relatively simple relationship. It's just, it's a, 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 a grandfather and a granddaughter who love each other and support each other and kind of slightly rebel against the, the, the sort of mum in the middle. That's fine. But there's that complexity, that detail to the relationship between Donna and Sylvia, I think is so important for the realism of Sylvia as a character because she's not just kind of like a shrew. She's not just like kind of a, a shrieking soap opera housewife, but she's also not just a, you know, don't you dare say anything bad about my daughter stereotype either. There's, there's, there's space in that relationship for these things to develop. And if there is another box set or if we do get Sylvia coming back at some point, I hope we have the opportunity to sort of explore that. Yeah, I think that's something Fitton understands well is this sort of love-hate relationship. I mean, not even love-hate, it's very more complicated than that. But just like this wanting the best for her, even if the way she expresses that is with this sort of dismissal and uh, impatience. and But you still get the love there, and I think that's so important and nice. I think it's a good take on how they would relate to each other. And so yeah, I'm, I think, yeah, it's a really strong relationship. And like I said, I think the Donna Nallard appeared. I talked about that before, but I want to touch on another th aspect of it, which is a very clever scene where Nat figures out why the fake Donna is fake, and then an even better scene when she's like staring at them the two at the end. And it, it comes down to those very simple things like, oh, uh, you had the freezer talk earlier, but it's such a moving little part of that is a little speech about how she realizes with all without the markers of success that they set out for themselves, that they thought they'd have for themselves, uh, Donna has wound up having a more fulfilling life. And Natalie is jealous of that, even though she also knows it's not a life she wants to live. She's jealous that Donna has uh, this sense of fulfillment and peace, not following the sort of standard path of everyone else. 
Yeah, exactly. And that, that again, it, it's it's such shades and complexity in the relationship. And, you know, I'm, I'm generally sort of relatively critical of Matt Fitton as a writer, but I think he does really key into something important there. Um, and that idea that it's possible to both appreciate why somebody else is doing better than you, but also that's not a thing for you. That's that's a real thing. That's, that feels very genuine. And I think it's as well because it's... The rest of the story could not be more bog standard if it tried. You know, it, the, the whole the whole aliens with potential and, and, and sort of freezing people and copying them. I mean, it's calling it rote feels a bit, a bit unkind to roteness, but you know, it's just like there's nothing there. But it doesn't matter because I think those details, I think those those sort of elements with the relationships is is kind of more important than than the primary plot. And again. You know, this is this is low key. This is a relatively minor story, but I, I, the details within those relationships really do help to kind of lift this. And if it's not, if it's not necessarily anchored in a great deal of drama, the fact that it's at least anchored in a sort of honesty about the relationships that these different characters have, even like even down to the fact that Sylvia has that she has a she has a line about the fact that she always hoped that Nat would be a good influence. On, on Donna, and I think there's a, a way in which Jacqueline King delivers that line that she's also a bit disappointed in Sylvia. She says, oh, well, you know, I hope that you'd, you'd be a good influence, and that's fine on the surface, but there's a way that she does it. It's just a slight little tickle of disapproval there, just exactly it's the same way that she kind of can't help herself but feel disappointed that Donna hasn't quite lived up to her expectations. And I really like that. Again, that feels like a kind of like an honest reaction. And so, yeah, whilst the main story is, is yeah, just, just completely bog standard by, by the book sort of stuff, those little shadings, those little details in the way that different sets of characters interact with each other as well as the main sort of two or three principal characters, again, it helps to give this, this story something. I mean, it's a great place to live the Chiswick Cuckoos. And I just have one last thought in the box of a whole... Uh, I'm such a Donna Noble super fan and such a Catherine Tate fan. I had... It went down easy, easy listening, but I think for us to cover a second Donna and Nat box set, if they get if they get there, it'd have to be a major step up from this because this is, I feel like we limped to about fifty minutes now, and it's uh yeah it's a, <laughs> it was an interesting to check out at least, but uh, yeah this is definitely one only if you need a good Catherine Tate in Doctor Who fix. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I mean, I think it's telling that we've managed to, uh, you know, get one episode out of these uh, four episodes, whereas when it comes to something like, like River or, or Captain Jack, you know, we, we, we can generally get sort of two episodes out of, of one box set. I mean, you know, like we were talking about like the, the, the fourth episode there, we didn't even mention the fact that David Tennant is in it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, it's an extended cameo, but that kind of like says, oh, like, like the last scene that him and Donna have together it's a sweet scene and yeah. then they basically you know they even do that thing with the the, the, the the trick from Blink about having David Tennant clearly record like one line for the psychic paper and then just keep reusing it again and again until he gets all to that last scene but that kind of you know that kind of says it all like yeah we, we listened to you know a box set which had an actual doctor in it and we didn't even kind of feel it worth mentioning um, yeah this this is fine it's pleasant like you I'm a huge Donna Noble fan a massive fan of Catherine Tate in the role um, but it, it, it needs to be more. It, it just does. All right. 
on that note, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we do have some uh, listener mail that we want to get to really quickly from Jay writing to us. Uh, he just has some recommendations, and I want to address them because they're two-month-old, <laughs> but there's been a lot going on. So uh, first off, I recommend the Irish Wild Time Seizures 2 or 5. Uh, I can sort of soft confirm that whenever we have Abby Denton back on, she's down to record more Iris Wild Time. So don't worry. We'll definitely be getting around to more Iris Wild Time box sets uh, when that sort of timing works out. Uh, there's a lot of Companion Chronicle recommendations. All of them, like Perry and the Python, how do you pronounce it, Paradox, and all the Arlva Harper trilogy are definitely ones on our radar that will be filled in because those are great stories. And Fourth Doctor Adventures Series 9, which... I can't remember where we left the fourth Doctor Adventures, but not on a good note. Maybe it's worth skipping ahead to Series 9, because the way he describes it as going back to E-Space, or staying in, within E-Space, and doing two-hour stories instead of one-hour stories sounds more promising. But, uh, yeah. Well, all those definitely under consideration. And then Jay also has a great idea for the 100 Anthology, which is to focus it on the eighth doctor and have each episode have him encounter different companion doctor companions from different times. Now, I know that's a very cost and schedule prohibitive thing for Big Finish to do, but yeah, I know I think it's an interesting idea for sure. It's very anniversary esque. So I guess to expand on the idea, have Paul McGann, Charlie and Kerris, and first episode meet the fifth doctor, Perry Aramems, and the second meet sixth and Evelyn, third, seven ace and hex. And, yeah, I think it is a definitely uh, solid idea. But I don't know. I kind of like, last story aside, how the Big Finish 100 we have is this more of a celebration of the writers. You get, I think we talked about the time, three of their, four of their most reliable writers uh, turning in three really good scripts, and then there's Paul Cornell's. But besides that, like, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a really solid box as it is. I don't know if I'd want to change it. Um, it's an interesting idea. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a bit torn because, because that last story is so poor and that last story could really have benefited from those kind of cameos with, with having like the actual doctors in them. Like, yeah, I, I definitely would, would say that that might be a nice thing for the final episode, but I don't know whether we need it for, for all of them. And um, going back to the, the sort of Fourth Doctor thing, um, where we left the Fourth Doctor was uh, Suburban Hell and the Cloisters of Terror. Um, so nowhere particularly interesting. Yeah. Um, but it's also a, a not very big secret of mine that uh, Season 18, which is the, the E-Space uh, season and, and Tom Baker's final, is my favourite season of Doctor Who across any iteration of the show. So uh, the idea of maybe doing like the ninth uh, fourth Doctor boxer is is definitely something that I would be down for. I would be very interested to see if Big Finish can, can sort of delve into that. With the slight caveat that Big Finish now might not be able to do as good a job of it as Big Finish maybe 10 years ago. But I'm definitely up for the idea of kind of exploring it at some point. Because, yeah, that is my, my favourite season of the show. We have um, Tom Baker, Lala Ward and, and Matthew Waterhouse back to do it. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly, uh, certainly amenable to that. All right. Uh, if you want to email us, you can find us at TalkingWhoToYou at gmail.com or on Twitter at TalkingWhoToYou. Uh, please send us 
uh, other thoughts on episodes and also recommendations, I'm going to put a specific call for recommendations. Uh, let us know your thoughts, speaking of recent big finish, on Lives of Captain Jack Volume 3 and fourth, First Doctor Adventures Volume 4. Both recent releases, both were kind of trepidatious to talk about. I know Jack has the incentive of River and First Doctor, as I guess has the continual incentive of David Bradley, but also I guess there's Daleks in that one. Not as exciting, but <laughs> um, yeah, let us know your thoughts, because we're on the fence about both of those, but would love encouragement or... Uh, on a disencouragement to sort of help shape the future schedule of this podcast. But for now, uh, I'll JJ will talk about what we're talking about next in a bit, but you can find me on Twitter at Kev Kozer. You can find more JJ's writings at www.jjmcquarry.scott, J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E.scott. Like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, and whatever podcatcher you use. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, well, we can leave it there for Donna for now and turn to what we're going to be covering next week. And we're going to be returning to the Companion Chronicles range. So we are going to be doing Old Soldiers, which means a glorious opportunity to have Nick Kirtney and the Brigadier back in their lives. And we're also going to be doing The Catalyst, so we'll be back with Leela. We're going to be doing both of those episodes. And of course, as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. <laughs>